When you think about where your life is now and how you got here, have you thought about and reflected on the experiences in your life and the impact it has had on the person you are today? Here at The Shape of You, we believe that these experiences shape where you are today, either physically or mentally. My name is Tanya Jones. I am a sports radio journalist, and I've interviewed many athletes who have overcome challenges. The Shape of You podcast aims to inspire you with life stories that may help reflect on your life and further understand your strength in overcoming life's challenges. Welcome to The Shape of You. The Shape of You would not be possible without our sponsor, Agility, the Power of Movement, offering massage, rehabilitation therapy, fitness training and personalised programs plus treatment of conditions such as back and neck pain and sports injuries. Agility, the power of movement, embodies a wellness philosophy with a holistic approach of education and prevention, seeking to improve your understanding of your body and factors influencing your overall health and well-being. Welcome to another episode of The Shape of You. John Meredith from Bendigo, Victoria, Australia joins me today to discuss growing up as an independent person and to examine nurture versus nature and what that means to him. John Meredith was born in the UK in 1950 and moved to the USA when he was very young with his parents and we're here to talk to John about his life story and find out how that has shaped who he is today. Thank you for joining me on The Shape of You, John Meredith. You're welcome, Tanya. I'm looking forward to this. Great to have you on the show, and and there's a lot to talk about. We've got a lot to get into today. Firstly, you moved to the UK in 1950, and then you went to the USA. So tell us Mm -hmm. about that for your parents at that stage. Well, my family moved to the well. My father and mother, my mother was already there, moved to the UK, and my father left the Indian Army and uh, joined the British Army, and ended up in the UK as well. I was born in 1950 in Folkestone, um, which is uh, on the northeast coast, southeast coast of the UK. And uh, my, after about a year, we went to the United States for military purposes for my father, and he was the military attaché to the British Army. Uh, he resigned his position there, and before he had done that, my sister was born. And we then left the United States and uh, went to Sri Lanka, which was in those days called Ceylon. And my dad worked for Black & Decker, power tool company. He was, we were there for about two years, and at that time I was most likely looked after by, in those days we called them servants, and people who were paid, paid to look after children, if you like, um, uh, nannies, I guess. Um, that... After two years there, my, uh, my sister and I, my parents moved to the Lebanon, where we spent two years in the Lebanon. And apparently it was then called the Paris, the Paris of, uh, of the Mediterranean. It was apparently an amazing place. I don't obviously remember. And then moved back to the UK for a period of, a period of time and then once again went across to the United States, um, where we spent uh, about three years. Um, we then went to the, the Philippines, and um, in the I can remember most of the Philippines, which was a lot of fun. I went to a Catholic school there, which was 
um, very religious. I wasn't allowed to go to mass because I wasn't a Catholic, but I still enjoyed my time there. We played baseball. We played baseball at, um, as the, the sport of the Philippines, taken over from the Americans. Um, after, after my time there, we, um, and, uh, John F. Kennedy died when we were there, so that's a, one a big memory. But I also remember being able to ride bikes everywhere, having slingshots and having sling, slingshot fights with the local kids, things like that. Once again, looked after by nannies and people uh, that were paid to look after us. We lived uh, very close to one of the um, clubs in the Philippines, which was the Polo Club, and which, which was a fantastic place to live. You had puddles from the horse's hoof prints and in the puddles were frogs and tadpoles and gave me a lot of interest in my future interest in animals. From the Philippines, we, we after two years in the Philippines, we left and uh, went back to the United States for a spell uh, and then went off to um, India. Uh, in India, my parents moved to Bombay in those days, which is now called Mumbai, and we, they spent six months there and, and I was sent off to a boarding school. Um, in South India, which was a, a missionary boarding school, which was co-educational. Uh, that's kind of a um, conflict in terms, really, because the co-educational boarding school was, was a lot of fun, had a great time. And I was about 16 at that time. Now, before that, before I went to the, I've just missed a bit. Before we went to, um, before we went to India, I went to boarding school. Um, we were based in Colombia in, in um, Medellin, which is the town of the, uh, Escobar and then the drug drug baron in those days it wasn't wasn't that like that but and I went to boarding school in America which was a military school and Tanya's going to ask me a few questions about the military school yeah I'm intrigued here John because in terms of the the military school you mentioned that your dad was in the military and one of the things for your dad was that he wanted you to follow in his footsteps so how did that feel for you um Terrifying, actually. The military school, I, I was a fairly insular child being brought up with really no friends, having traveled to so many different places. You really weren't able to make any long-term friends or long-term memories, for that matter, being very short time in each place. In fact, we never had two Christmases in the same house until I came to Australia when I was not 18. The military school itself was, was quite a terrifying place, about 600 students. Um, we, we would get up at six in the morning, we'd make our beds, march to breakfast, march to classes. After classes, uh, three days a week, we had drill where we carried 303 Springfield rifles and marched around parade grounds and learned all the, t all the basics that you would if you were going to basic training in, in a, uh, an American um, military, um, how would you call it, I, I guess with the American, American military. Uh, we learned how to shoot, we learned how to march, uh, we learned how to obey orders. And I was one of the only English kid in the whole school. So needless to say, bullying was rife. And I was often the, uh, the butt of the bullying, unfortunately. So I had three years there and then we went to India. So I sort of carry on with the previous story. And I went to a boarding school in South India, which was fantastic. Um, we had a wonderful time. We did um, lots of bushwalking, hikes, animals, elephants, monkeys. You can't, can't imagine how fantastic it was to see all these, all this wildlife basically running around. We had, if you left the doors of the, the dorm open at night, you'd have jackals coming in and eat, eating your food. Things just, just an amazing place to live. And after that time, we went to, I, I left India, my parents and I came to Australia. My parents left me here when I was 18. I lived in a boarding house in Ashfield. And um, my parents went back to India and then eventually went to Singapore. 
and I stayed in Australia and I was intending to go to Portsea Military Academy again because of my father and my grandfather both being in the military. And um, I was I went into um, at 19 to, um, to to go through the preliminary testing and I was told to come back when I was 21 because I was far too young and the Vietnam War was just ending at that stage. I think they were running out of um, running out of um, they had too many officers and they didn't want any more. So effectively, I was told to come back with 21, and instead I got married. So that was my first um, stage of my life. I want to unpack one particular thing you said was about the the bullying side of it, because for for me, the impact that would have from military school then going into boarding school, because there's always conversations about boarding school and the experiences there. Did the bullying in military school have an impact on you going into that? Uh, yeah, yes, I think it did. It, it, it's very hard to look back and to think of what was happening as bullying. You you look at it and you think to yourself, that was just the way it was. And you didn't really see it as I'm being bullied. You saw it as being what just happened to everybody. And you sort of didn't see, um, I believed I was sort of picked on more because I was of a, a foreign language or a foreign language. It is, in Virginia, it is a foreign language, but it, uh, from England. And so, yeah, so I'd have to say the bullying had an effect and you, you sort of become a bit insular um, and you become less less confident of yourself uh, because I think that's part of the military way is to make it all about uh, being in, someone being in control of you. And if they are in control, then you're not really in control of yourself. So leaving, leaving America, leaving the military school, uh, I was very pleased to do it. I, you know, I I hated the uniforms, I hated the march marching, and I hated all the basically all of it. Going to a boarding school in South India, which was a missionary boarding school where everybody cared for you, was quite a quite a surprise. It was quite different to what you'd expect. I really enjoyed my time there. It was amazing. Not only the 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 fact that people they were most of kids were missionary kids, so they they cared cared about the kids around them, cared about the Indians and who were working with them in the, in the school. It was quite a different environment, not to mention the amazing food that you had in India. And if you could see me sitting here now, you know that I'm very fond of food. Um, well, I was thinking of my dog walking around and wanting to be near you as well, which just, you were talking about animals before and your love for animals as you were growing up. And I think animals tend to be drawn to you, John. It, it tends to be a, a scenario where it's moved on for you in your life. Yeah, and I've always got, got on really well with animals. And I, I've always believed that if a dog doesn't like you, there's always got something you, something you should be concerned about. Um, the same with babies, but dogs are more predictable than babies. So, yeah, so I've always loved animals. And, they, and in India, I mean, you, you go walking, we, we've seen... Uh, a black uh, a leopard, black leopard. You've seen um, elephants in the wild. You've seen they have in India a thing called a gawa. If you wanted to look it up, it's amazing. It's an amazing cow. It's absolutely huge. You never see them on documentaries, so anyone who's interested should look up a gawa. Uh, it stands about six to seven foot tall, and it's just just incredible animal. But anyway, getting back, no, I love animals. I always have done. Uh, and it's uh, always had a dog family. Family always had a dog, which was uh, great for. I think it's great for children to have a dog. That's just my opinion, but I do really think that's true. Well, I, I think it's true very much so myself. And uh, quite an interesting time for you growing up as well, because you had 
10 million places that you were staying, weren't you? You couldn't just settle into one spot. Do you, do you think that's influenced how you feel today in terms of your life? Do you feel unsettled if you're in one spot for too long? Has that had an impact on you? Actually, it does. The, the two things about not settling, one thing is, for example, my, my wife, um, she grew up in the same house. She left there when she was sort of 20. Um, all her memories repeated on a daily day basis. So when you ask her what she was doing when she was five, she can often remember those things. But if you ask me what I was doing with the five, I've got no idea because nothing was reinforced. You basically go from you basically go from one one house to another house. And as I said, two Christmas never had two Christmases in the same house. You you then start to you remember what you were doing at the time at the time, but once you try to look back on those times. It's very difficult to remember. Military school in the Philippines, you remember because you're older, much older, and you spent three years in military school. Um, so you do tend to remember that. And the Indian one, of course, you're again 16 years old, so you remember all of that. And that's a wonderful memory to have. So if I could have any memory, that's the one I'd choose. Um, yeah, so it, it, is, it is difficult um, to have that. And the friendship thing where you have friends, I mean, Facebook's allowed me to have friends, all my friends from India, I still see them here, talk to them or see them on Facebook. But if you go any further past that time, I don't know anybody from that era. So it's not like you're running, walking down the street and you see somebody you've known since you were two. That's never going to happen to me. Do you yearn for that? Is that something you feel like you've missed out on? Uh, yeah, I think that the community part of that is very important. The fact that you belong to somewhere is extremely important. I think growing up in an environment where you really didn't belong anywhere, and especially in a foreign country where you it was even worse because not only did you not belong, but you weren't part of the race, you didn't speak the language in many cases, um, and you weren't able to speak the language because you weren't there long enough to develop skills in any particular language. So I speak a bit of Spanish, I know how to ask for a glass of water in, in Hindustani, and that's really about it. Uh, so, and the fact is, when you went to these places, you mixed with your own, I know this is going to sound awful, you mixed with your own kind, um, the, the, when they call expats. You had a party and all you ever saw there was people from England or people from America or people from Australia, You would, and occasionally from Europe. But you would hardly ever see from the Philippines or you'd hardly ever see someone from India coming to your party. Although India was a bit different, we did have some very nice neighbours who... One of them was actually a Maharani, would you believe? So she'd come to the parties every now and then, which was lovely. And she'd invite us to sit on one of her elephant foot stools, which never, never, I'd, I never really had was happy about. But uh, still, we did have some mixed in. But as younger children, I don't remember people's. We'd we'd sit up and watch the parties going on, a bit like you see on some of the older movies where the kids are kind of looking at what's all this fancy dress and all that, and everybody dressed up. Everybody was very formal. But it was all expats, so you didn't really get to uh, learn much about the area. In, in India, I mixed with a few kids from when I first moved there. But when you went to when you went to the missionary school, there was about five Indians in the missionary school, so you really didn't get to mix with them. But almost all the kids there who were missionary kids spoke a language because they'd grown up with medical missionaries or teaching missionaries. Um, so they were great to go out with because they. They'd communicate for you and they'd order your food and all that sort of stuff. But eventually you got to do that. You, and the food was, again, food was amazing. So. 
always nice to have those memories and food does give you memories, doesn't it? Does, it? Yeah. <laughs> so I want to go back to when you first arrived in Australia and your dad obviously wanted you to go to military school. And at that stage when you came to Australia, your parents were divorced? No. no? I, I arrived I arrived in uh, when I was 18 and uh, I went into a, a boarding school in, uh, sorry, a boarding house in uh, Ashfield in, in Sydney. Um, my mother was told that I was living with relatives, um, so she had no idea I was in a boarding house. And I was sort of 18, and around me was guys in their 40s and 50s, bricklayers, carpenters, all that sort of stuff. Guys, that, Some guys who didn't get on really with the rest of the world. Uh, but it was an inter- interesting place for a period of time. I then, I then moved to a, um, um, uh, a house with someone from work. I worked for Woolies as a storeman um, in the first, my first part of jobs here in Australia. Uh, and uh, one of the women there said, you come and, come and stay in my house. She, had, she, she boarded one other person. Um, and eventually I, I fell in love with the, with the Robert Timms girl who, was the coffee, who ran the coffee bar at, um, in Woolies Town Hall. And I went into the Woolworths management training scheme and eventually became Woolies manager. Um, but at that stage, once, once I fell in love and we, got, we sort of had a relationship, I couldn't get married till I was 21, which I waited. And then I, um, we got our own sort of flat, which was a one-bedroom place in the back of a block of flats in, in, Kud- in Kudji. Um, so that was the sort of start of our relationship, and that lasted some 13 years. Uh, and, and what did you like most about her when you first met her? Because in terms of your life and your relationships up until that stage, it was probably quite fragmented, wasn't it? Did, did she offer that type of stability for you at that stage? Yes, she did. For a number, first, first of all, she was absolutely gorgeous. I'm uh, very fussy. Um, ab- absolutely gorgeous. Uh, she was. She was. Um, I was very lucky. Uh, and she was four years older than me, which I think was important to me because I needed that stability. Um, not mothering stability, but at least somebody who's older and wiser. Because I, I was only when I met her, I was only 19. So yeah, and so she was 23. So there's a fair bit of difference in age, um, but. And when you're young, that young, it's a it's a big big difference. But she was very caring, she was very loving. We had a lovely time. Uh, we just grew apart eventually, uh, but we were together almost thirteen years. Um, so, uh, but it was a very stable relationship in, until you know the, at the end it got less stable. But, yeah. And you never had kids together. No, no children, no children at all, which was sad. Um, so I was then with someone else for about four years, and meantime I uh, left Woolworths and got a job in the pharmaceutical industry and uh, was a sales rep for the for the pharma industry, mainly so I could have some time off because when those days with Woolworths you basically worked 60 hours a week every week and you didn't really get a great deal of time off. So I, I took up scuba diving and that was my hobby. So I was with, uh, with um, a pharmaceutical company for about three years and the two of us went to New Zealand for a um, couple of years uh, because she was from New Zealand originally and took up a lot of diving in New Zealand, had a wonderful time with crayfish and fish and eating and very stable, got another job with a pharmaceutical company over there and very stable life at that time, very stable. And, and with scuba diving, I, I should imagine it offers you some sort of adrenaline rush and, and it gets you into a, a realm of the unknown, which is probably what you're used to as well. Yeah, of course. Living the life I led, led being all over the world. Uh, every time you do something new, it's like a new adventure. But 
scuba diving is like someone says to you, what, what's it like? And they say, well, if you could go to the moon, it would be similar to going to the moon, only you just walk out the door and find some water and go underwater. And it's just, just amazing. It's one of the most amazing places. Anyway, in New Zealand, I, I did a, a diving instructor's course, became a diving instructor, and, and taught for about, came back to Australia after two years and taught for about 10 years uh, on and off uh, as a second job. Uh, still doing the pharmaceutical industry. In, in the meantime, I um, advanced into a training job, national sales job, and then I went through a number of different companies um, in the industry, and I was made redundant at the age of 50, uh, which is distressing because it's very hard to get work at the age of 50. And if you reach a certain stage in your life, that's very diff even more difficult because there's much less, many fewer, fewer jobs and you have an issue with um, uh, people looking at your age and thinking you're uh, too, too experienced to do a job or, or um, not experienced enough, depending on what you're going for. It's always a tough scenario to, to work through, isn't it, as your age and in terms of profession and, and so forth. It gives you that sense of self-identity, doesn't it? Hmm. Oh, yes, it does. And you, you lose your identity. And the first thing I wanted to do is buy myself a nice car, which is part of your whole demeanor I guess when you when you drive around in a nice car it gives you that feeling of uh, I guess sadly it's importance really and you make you feel makes you feel good about yourself oh, and I sort of went out and bought a nice car but it wasn't a nice car <laughs> anyway so I got rid of it and just got a car that I was comfortable in which was much better um, and you certainly grow you grow out, out of the disappointment and realize that you can enjoy life anyway you don't have to have a great job as long as you get some money coming in anyway in the meantime I married my current wife, um, who we've now been together for 33 years, um, and uh, we've, we've spent 20, 21 years of those in Bendigo. So let's get into the end of the story. And in Bendigo, we have spent more than two Christmases in the same house, and I have got some stability, and I've now got some grandchildren, and obviously a daughter, um, which, which I inherited my daughter, uh, which is a nice, I, I feel a lovely thing to do when someone's single with a child. I think it's great a great thing to inherit a child because you you take all the nature uh, out of that relationship and you build in your nature, not nurture. So you're able to, whatever you do for that child is, is a nurture thing, not a, a nature thing. When, and how she behaves, you can't blame yourself for the nature. You can blame someone else for the nature. But the nurture is your responsibility. It's a huge responsibility. And I, I, the question I asked you before about your first wife when I, I said, did you have children? And I noticed a little bit of an uncomfortable reaction. And, and for my mind, I, I know it's a, a question that everyone asks, and that's the reason I asked it. Do you, do you sometimes feel frustrated or annoyed with that question constantly about your first marriage? Uh, you can't get annoyed about it. I mean, it's, it's your choice often to, to have a child or not have a child. We believe that we shouldn't have it. You've got to remember that in those days, support for people having children was nil. There was no support. You had to manage on your own. You had to give up whatever uh, luxuries you had in life because you had a child. Whereas quite different today, whereas people can be supported by the government in other ways if you have a child. But back then, there was no real support. So we intended to have a child, and I use the word eventually, but we, the eventually just never came because we never really got to a financial stage where we owned our own home or, or that sort of thing where you could say, we can now have a child because we own our own home, we're stable in our jobs, etc. 
and that time never came. So w when we divorced, it was a um, something that I had never achieved. Um, four years later, I, I met my current wife, and we intended to have children as well, but that just never panned out. So I have no children. And interesting enough, um, this I'm the last of our particular line of the the Meredith family, and uh, we went recently to Tasmania to. Um, celebrate our arrival, um, our family's arrival um, in 1821 in Tassie, who was, they were the first free settlers to arrive in Tasmania before that were basically just convicts. So it was a fantastic thing to do, but then you realize when you meet all these people and you see that you're in a line, a generational line, that your line's finished and you weren't able to, you weren't able to fulfill what is used to be a requirement in life is to 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 have a child, which would give that line a long a longer a longer a longer line a longevity. So that's a weird thing to do, going to see a group of people who are your descendants and or, or come from um, a place like Tasmania, and, and you're the last of that particular one of the particular lines, and you haven't done your job, if you like, and you know, continued that. So it makes you sad for that reason. I can imagine that has a tremendous impact on you and, and just hearing you talking about it, I, I can see the impact it's had on you and, and you said, I have no children, but indeed you did bring up a child from a very a very young age, non-biological at that. But the the I suppose the inherent importance of a human being to procreate, isn't it? It's that sort of inherent profound feeling that you haven't been able to fulfill or didn't fulfill. But at the same time, a different type of fulfillment for you in your life, though, bringing up a child from a very young age. Yeah, most certainly bringing up, I guess you'd say somebody else's child is a different thing altogether than bringing up your own. Uh, but there's a different type of satisfaction. And uh, I suppose it's as, it's as rewarding and in some ways not more rewarding um, because you've sort of, um, I guess you've... Um, Either, although you haven't got children of your own, you're able to still sort of help bring somebody into the world or give, bring them into the world as a, you know, historically, um, as you as you would like to. And she's turned out a very nice person. A couple of, I've got a couple of grandchildren now, um, and she's, she's got a great job and her husband's got a great job. So in a way, that's that's very, very satisfying. Do you think about it still, having grandchildren and so forth, and they obviously call you granddad and things like that, and is there, there a part of you that still feels that a, a tiny bit of disconnect or you feel completely connected? Uh, I'd, be, I'd be misleading you if I felt that you don't get the tiny bit of disconnect every now and then, uh, because don't forget I'm only responsible for the nurture. I'm not responsible for the nature, and every now and then that nature does show itself, and that can be that can be just, uh, depressed, just distressing because you sort of think you're responsible for that. But in reality, there there is definitely a, a gap between nature and nurture, and there are some people who grow up in a shocking world and they become fantastic individuals, and others grow up in an amazing world and become awful people. So there's always a there's always some of that nature thing that has to sneak in, and every now and then you think that, but as far as my grandchildren are concerned, now they're, they're the best anchors you could possibly have to keep you somewhere because you, you can't possibly leave them because they uh, even drive past our road and just say, da, da, which is what they call me. And they both talk about wanting to go see da and want to stay the night at da's, want to do this with da. So it's a one, an absolutely wonderful feeling. 
how important are those relationships to you then? Oh, they're they're everything really. I mean, they're everything. If I, um, yeah, they they they're a strength uh, and they're a weakness at the same time. And the strength is that you you've got them there and you know that they really love you. And the weakness is you've got them there and they really love you. Both of them are really a fascinating thing because they're they're in such control of your life and you don't aware you're not aware of it. But I'm sure people out there with grandchildren can appreciate that. that's exactly what happens. Their strength and a weakness. They're, they're everything to most people and uh, to watch these two little kids growing up and uh, watch their behavior and the facial expressions and you know and they love dogs which is great all those things are amazing um, yeah, yeah so you gradually fantastic does being a parent yourself does that make you think about your upbringing a little bit more and how your parents treated you is that something that you reflect on sometimes mm, I knew you'd get to that eventually uh, yeah, most certainly. And, and you, I'll give you an example. I was talking to Tanya about this and we were, we were joking about it, but it's not really a joke. And when my mother and my father got, got together, and I'm not sure about the circumstances, I was about six months premature, which tells me or hints to me that possibly my, that relationship was not, a, what, was not an ideal relationship in that it was probably more like a shot shotgun relationship whereas in those days if you got somebody pregnant you did the right thing especially if you're in the military you you know and they, people found out you really did the right thing that wasn't so whether my father and my mother really loved each other and maybe I was a burden on that because I forced them to get married I, I'll never know but it always felt that way uh, that I was superfluous to the relationship and uh, being sent off having people look after me other than my parents very rarely in my growing up, except when we lived in America or lived in the UK, did my parents have a lot to do with my upbringing or going anywhere or doing something together. It was mainly done with somebody, the driver of the car, the chauffeur that we had or the, one of the servants we had. And I'm using servants because there is, really isn't any other word for the people at that time. They were paid people, they weren't unpaid, but at the same time they, they were in servitude to us, I guess. But that was the way they made their living. Uh, yeah, so I've never really felt comfortable with my relationship with my parents. My parents got divorced when I was 21. Um, it was not a great divorce, not, not friendly at all. And um, uh, my, I used to ring my mother at, uh, in the UK from here. And she, my sister would be looking after her and she said, oh, she doesn't want to talk to you. And um, that kind of thing, quite devastating in a way. And thankfully, if I, the women in my life, and particularly the one I'm with now, is very understanding and very helpful in that situation. So it, it does, it does, it does make it hard for you to think that you lived the life that you would like to have lived. People say, "Aren't you lucky to have done all the things you've done?" Um, and I am incredibly lucky, and I think it's made me much more worldly than the average individual. But at the same time, it's uh, distressing to think. I didn't grow up with family all around me or uh, relatives and, you know, Christmases with great groups of people having coming over for a barbecue and uh, I often just grew up with my parents and maybe they invited some of their friends over for a drink. Um, we, we certainly had fun with some kids that we knew. In Columbia, for example, we used to go horseback riding. Um, I had my own, well, I had a, a rental horse for the time I was on holidays. Um, and so those sort of things you were able to do that most people can't do. We'd go sailing every now and then. We'd do all those sort of things that wealthy people did. Um, but 
being sent away is not a nice feeling. And I think people from the country get sent away all the time in Australia. And I'm sure if you ask them, some would have had a wonderful time and some didn't. It was just the way things were. Uh, and in that time, in those in those days, from the 50s to 60s, it was a different world than what it is now. Yeah. I do appreciate your openness there, John. It's a tough question to answer, isn't it, really? And and I wonder at that stage when you were young in that situation, did you actually realise what was going on at the time? Did you complain to your parents about, oh, you're not spending enough time with me? Was it at the forefront of your mind or is it just as an adult you've learnt to, to think about it and understand it a little bit more? Yeah, the, there's... The... When you're living that life, there's no way that you understand what's going on. You you don't you just think that's normal. And in my in my world, it was normal. Uh, all all the kids had had people looking after them, servants looking after them, the parents had abdicated those responsibilities because they could. Um, so you just thought it was a normal world. I don't think any child, uh, unless they're in today's world where you're educated from basically the age of five or six about like what life should be like, I don't think in those days you had that kind of education. Nobody told you that uh, getting smacked on your bum was a bad thing. Nobody told you um, that you shouldn't be dragged from school to school. You, you just took that as what life was all about. So you, you only look back on it and think, well, how, how weird was that as opposed to what's happened to kids today. But I can still guarantee you there are children today, certainly ones in the military, who are dragged from pillar to post. But in those days, if you wanted to get from, say, India to um, um, England, it would take three or four plane trips. And, I mean, I've been on a, I've been on a constellation, quite a Qantas constellation. I think that took oh, two days to get somewhere uh, in India from a, from the UK. Um, so you you had some wonderful times. I've flown in DC three, DC fours, all these things that kids did get to do, which I've done. So yeah, that's all wonderful. But at the, at the same time, do you miss the stability of family all around you? I can't answer that because I don't know. don't know the difference. And so that would have been really important for your daughter growing up in your mind. You would have thought, okay, we need to provide her with that stability and consistency, routine and yeah. so forth. Yeah, most, most certainly that was important. Um, and we did move a few houses, but we didn't, didn't move a few countries. Um, so no, she grew, up, she grew up in a very stable environment. Um, never went to boarding school. Uh, in fact, she didn't. She didn't really thrive till she came to Bendigo, actually, uh, which she did so well when she came down here. Because I guess we were staying here for a long time and uh, that stability is very important. So the person you are today, John, uh, looking at the person you are today, you're living in Bendigo, Victoria, and the experiences that you've had in your life growing up and, and your, your marriages and having a, a child as well, bringing up... A wonderful daughter that you're very happy to to say that she's your daughter and you've brought her up uh, in a very routine household. So, so in terms of where you are today, the person that you are has that shaped who you are today? Yeah, I think I think everything you go through in life shapes how you end up in life. Um, it, for example, one of the problems I have is I love talking to people, and I would just grab some poor individual sitting having a coffee and sit with them and have a chat. I love doing it and I've, I've been overseas recently and I, I literally, you find out so much when you sit and talk to people. Uh, but in, in today's world, people are a little bit less uh, inclined to do so. 
so I can be quite disarming. So yeah, chatting with people is lovely. And I think part of my upbringing gave me the ability to talk to almost anyone about almost anything. And, and that's a fascinating way to be because you're continually increasing your knowledge about what goes on in the world and what how people think. And it's just an amazing thing. And part of that is, I guess, the way I was brought up that you don't, at one stage I was shy and, and reticent and then after military school and after certainly after the boarding school in India, uh, you became much more, um, uh, what's the word, um, capable of discussing things with people, talking to people, emboldened if you like. And um, I guess I got the jobs and the positions I got because people liked the way I behaved with other people, talked and always been, and one thing, I guess, one thing your parents, my parents did do, that I'll go back on briefly, is taught me to respect, uh, respect people. And that was, you very, always respected your elders, always respected a woman. Um, and that was, I guess you've got, that was hammered into me, I guess, uh, sometimes literally. Um, but yeah, you, you do learn respect. And that was part of growing up in those environments because of, meeting diplomatic core people, meeting people from big business, you learn to respect people. And I think respecting is such a great part of our lives today that we're often missing, uh, sadly. Yeah. It's a very important aspect of human relationships, isn't it? Yeah. Respect. Is there another very important moral that you have in your life that you, that you learnt growing up? Yeah. This wasn't scripted, by the way, so she's put me right on, <laughs> right in an awkward position now. It's another moral. Honesty is a, another moral that I like to always tell the truth. And that sounds very religious based on spending two years in a missionary school, but it, it wasn't taught there. It was taught by my father. Um, I can give him credit for that. Um, yeah, honesty is one. And I think giving every, everybody credit for something in life. There's always somebody... Even though people are generally bad, there's always something good in almost everyone. Not everyone, but almost everyone's got something good. And I love talking to people who will open up. I can get people to tell me birthdays, Christmases, all that sort of stuff, just by asking the right questions. And if work has taught me anything, there's one thing that work has taught me that the best thing you can learn to do is to listen and to ask questions that are open-ended. In other words, questions that don't give you a yes or no answer. And if you can ask those sort of questions, you find out some amazing things about people. So, anything else you want to ask me, Tony? Well, I suppose that's my job here in the podcast to ask open, open-ended questions. And and I've noticed during during this whole podcast, my dog's been walking around and wandering and wanting John's attention. So to me, that is just fantastic, and it's very appropriate for the podcast. I think having the dog walking in the background and wanting to be around you and. And I think that that's very important, isn't it, in life, is that people are drawn to you and, and people want to talk to you. And you, you were saying that you like to talk to everyone and find out people's life stories and have a great chat with them. And I think that's, as you said, I think some people are reluctant to do that nowadays. And it's a, quite, quite an important thing to do, isn't it? Humans need to talk to mm. each other. Mm. Yes, we do. And sadly, I, I'll, often, I'll often make a joke with people who are sitting on the same table both looking at their mobile phones, and I'll come up to them saying, are you talking to each other on your phones? And they, of course, give me this weird look, and, but it tells them something about what they're doing, and I don't think they quite realise that when you go out, you're supposed to sit and talk to each other rather than chat with someone else. And it's invariable that somebody will be pulling out a mobile phone and have a chat. So if you want, if you want to make a sort of a, a hobby of something, whenever you see two people on a table, 
looking at talking on their mobile phones, they you know they're not talking to each other. But it's always nice to say you two talking to each other because it it tells them that they really should be talking to each other and not chatting with someone else on a mobile phone. Um, it is the mobile phone has really taken a lot of people's attention away. You can ride on a subway in, in London, for example, and you can have maybe fifty people in there, and you'll find three people that may not be using their mobile phone. Um, and I think mobile phones will take a lot. And as a society, we need to chat with each other because we need to understand where we're coming from. Uh, we we make assumptions or we do polls to evaluate people's thinking. And really, we need to talk to each other and say, what, what do you really think? And the saddest thing I've seen in recent events is that we are now cautious about how we think and what we say, because we really need to define the other person's point of view before we discuss anything with them, because we don't want to cause a, dis a disturbance by discussing something that they disagree with. Um, there used to be a time when we could disagree and it wasn't a big deal. Now, sadly, it's a big deal. So the, another rule would be if you want to talk to someone about something that's a little bit tricky, then maybe just find out their feelings first. There's easy ways of doing that. Um, and then have, open a conversation before you open your mouth and get yourself shut down very quickly by disagreeing with what they think. But it's a good way to, to talk to people. And, and the important thing is listening, as you said previously. Listening. It's important to listen. That's, that's conversation in itself, isn't it? Yeah. Um, we apparently listen, when we listen, we hear, um, when someone's, when someone's put something on television, we see it and we hear it. And because we hear it and see it, we remember it a lot better than someone just talking to us because there's only one medium of knowledge or medium of exposure to information. So when someone's talking to you, you have to listen because you will miss so much if you don't. And in today's world, missing something in a conversation can be very important. Yeah, missing something in a text message or the rather not understanding a text message and the intention might be different. So that's where problems can arise as well. Yeah, and, and in text message, of course, um, punctuation applies too because we think we shouldn't use punctuation in a text message, but your message is diluted if the punctuation is not correct and you might want to say something in particular. And if you put the punctuation in the wrong place, the story is whatever you were trying to say is, is gone, it's lost. So, I don't really have... <laughs> you don't have... Well, John Meredith, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And before I let you eat that marvellous platter that's sitting right next to you and pat my dog, who's furiously trying to get your attention, I just want to ask you one more question. The, the highlight of your life, the, the most significant thing in your life that you feel has shaped who you are, uh, just... It's one moment in your life where you go, wow, that the incredibly interesting moment that you will remember forever. Is that something that, that you can refer to for the rest of your life? I'm putting you on the spot. Um, yeah, it's later in life. I think we talked briefly about me inheriting a daughter. I think when I first met Carrie Ann and Alex, that's my daughter and my, my wife, um, or my partner, as you have to say these days, I um, fell in love with my daughter first because she was just so amazing. And uh, never having had an opportunity to be closer exposed to a small child in that kind of environment, that has to be the most meaningful thing that's ever happened in my life. Um, and 
bringing up bringing up a child is an amazing experience and uh, gratifying, distressing, troubling, all those things that bringing up a child is for everybody. Uh, and no, no, that would be it if you wanted to ask. I'm sure there's other things back in my history that triggered moved you in a certain direction, a promotion or uh, that that sort of thing. But uh, no, bringing up my daughter was the most important thing. Yeah, I should say my marriage to my wife was the most important thing. <laughs> well, it's fantastic to to end on that note, though, John, and and to grovel like that at the end yeah. as well. That's fantastic. I do appreciate your time and your honesty as well. We, we spoke about honesty, we spoke about respect, and you are a person that people respect, and your honesty is really appreciated as well, particularly on the Shape of You podcast as well. We like to, to hear life stories, and yours in particular has been varied and very interesting, John. And, and is that what you think about your life as well? Do you, do you feel, okay, I've had a really interesting life? Oh, yeah, most, most certainly. I'd have to think my life has been probably more interesting than... 95% of the population in, in the way it was lived. Uh, but there'd be that other, that 95% of the population also led an interesting life, but in a totally different way, where, which is family and orientation and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, and you, you'll find there are other people who would say similar things to what I've been saying, who grew up in a similar manner. We're, we're not unique. We're, un, I guess, unusual, but certainly not unique because lots of people who grew up traveling all over the world and um, have the similar type of views or may not have the similar type of views. I don't know. You'd have to talk to them. I'd have to get um, Tanya to get them on the podcast. That's right. We can, we can listen to them and that's what it's all about, listening. John Meredith, thank you very much for your time on The Shape of You today. Thanks, Tanya. I've had a wonderful time. Thank you. Thank you.